0: Dr. Uh, Donald Wellingfang, thanks for joining us on the podcast. You've been here recording with Johnette, Women of Grace, on Edith Stein. I heard that. I wanted to talk to you and just hear some reflections on Edith Stein. And Yeah, you know, a friend of mine was asking, why do we always know her about Edith Stein, not Teresa Benedicta
1: of the Cross? Why do they do that? I think because it's easier to say <laughs> Edith Stein, and the other one's are a little mouthful.
0: Yeah. But uh, you teach at uh, Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit. And one of the things you teach is spirituality. You're a third-order Carmelite. Right.
1: And so tell us a little bit about Edith Stein's spirituality. Sure. Edith Stein, what a tremendous woman, tremendous story. From her childhood all the way to the end when she died, I believe at age 51, on August ninth, 1942 in Auschwitz, mm-hmm. concentration camp in a gas chamber there, uh, because of her Jewish ethnicity, but also because of her Catholic identity, as she eventually became a Carmelite nun and was living in a monastery in Echt, Netherlands, to try to protect her from the Nazis. But the Dutch uh, Catholic bishops spoke out against the Nazi deportation of Jewish people. And as a reprisal, uh, the Nazis uh, went after all Catholics of Jewish ethnicity. So Edith and her sister Rosa were among them Mm. who were deported and Mm. then um, executed in Auschwitz. And so a lot of people are familiar with that magnitude of her life and this kind of dual martyrdom Mm. that went on. But less familiar are people with the whole of her life and and what happened there. And she's an intense thinker. And I think that coincides with Carmelite spirituality, a real concentrated movement Mm -hmm. of contemplation and an exercise of the intellect to the highest degree to the point of kenosis, the emptying Mm -hmm. of the intellect and memory and will. Like St. John of the Cross talks about.
0: Kind of the nada, the nothing. Right. <laughs> yeah. To receive. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I, I actually got to go to, is it Roslav, where she, her birthplace, or where she Yeah. Girl? It yeah. used to be called Breslav. but yeah. Breslau, yeah. Yeah. Breslau, yeah. So, yeah, I went to the home there. They have a wonderful museum, that wonderful tour guide there. And, and uh, it's hard. Seemed like her life is complicated, like her studies, and and she was like really moved around quite a bit, right? Teaching, mm-hmm. working in schools mm-hmm. around Germany and mm-hmm. Poland, I guess. Uh, but she had a lot of energy. It seemed mm-hmm. like didn't she had yeah, so much energy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot like Saint Therese, she wanted it all. Mm-hmm. She was all in. She thought toward the whole. She loved languages, studying language, history, uh, especially German language and history, psychology, philosophy. And it took her all the way into theology eventually, even though she underwent an atheistic slumber, age 13 to 21. Mm -hmm. It's really a remarkable part of her story. And I think something that is inspirational for us today when we're confronted by different doubts about believing in god or our catholic faith and we see this this young girl become a young woman passionate about the truth and she herself struggled admittedly so but it wasn't a lazy kind of agnosticism or tacit atheism it was like she was looking for evidence mm-hmm. to believe and she finally found it right. and she was working with
0: and student yeah. of right some of the great isn't like the founders of phenomenology, like first mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Have you done much research into that? Or oh, yeah. Can you explain a little bit about what does that mean? Exactly? What oh, is- for sure.
1: <laughs> I even published a little book called Phenomenology, A Basic Introduction in the yeah. Light of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So it's trying to understand the method and its trajectory all the way into the field of theology and exploring divine revelation through mm-hmm. this philosophical method but yeah as you mentioned Edmund Husserl at the turn of the 20th century inaugurates this new philosophical method that aims to get back to the things themselves get back to absolute and essential objectivity Mm. instead of being swept up into what was called psychologism at the time or similar to what we call relativism today where it's a subjectivism of all experience He wanted to get at these universal meanings and essences. And this method was a way to do that. So in German, he says, zu den Sachen selbst, to the things themselves. We have to get to the things themselves. So it was called a kind of um, uh, similar to Thomism in that sense, where we really want to know the objective truth of reality. And phenomenology has a similar goal. But a, a different approach. I like to talk about if we think about truth as a house. There's a front door and mm-hmm. a back door. Mm-hmm. The front door is classical metaphysics, and mm-hmm. it's absolutely necessary yeah. for Catholic philosophy. St. John Paul II talks about this in *Fides et Ratio* is 1998 encyclical *Faith and Reason* on a sound Catholic philosophy. And he even mentions Edith Stein in that encyclical. But we need classical metaphysics, but to meet people in a sense where they're at by appealing to common lived experience as human beings, this is a backdoor approach to evangelization, and this is phenomenology. It's a descriptive method, whereas metaphysics is an explanatory method, deductive. Mm. But phenomenology is inductive. It starts with the lived experience, and focuses in on the universal shared meanings of common lived experience, and then we we have this unity where we can journey together, like Jesus with Cleopas and the unnamed disciple on the road to Emmaus. Yeah, and you know it seemed like yeah you know, John Paul II
0: embraced both those worlds so well, right and. And like, what is the metaphysical part of it that that they would bring into it that would help them? Because I'm, I'm thinking also of Hildebrand, because mm-hmm. we did some classes with Alice von Hildebrand, and um, and I just thought he was just wonderful in his explanations of the experience of the thing. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he could just come at it from all these angles, these facets, and describe the experience of this thing. But I. I So how do we blend the two of metaphysics, like the, you said, the inductive and the, what was Deductive. Deductive, yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think it's best to let each remain what it is Uh um, in its own peculiarity and distinction, and just let them be in dialogue with each other. Uh And I recommend beginning with a phenomenological descriptive analysis of an experience uh-huh. and just describing all that we can about it phenomenology its method works with three steps I would say bracket receive and describe what's bracketed is called the natural attitude and it's all these working assumptions we have about reality uh, a lot of biases presuppositions oftentimes ideologies and this prevents us from thinking toward the whole and experiencing all the givenness within lived experience. So we have to work to bracket that natural attitude because the natural attitude signifies a reductionistic way of thinking in one way or another. So in order to expand the reductionism, we have to reduce it. It's this logic of the double negative. And we find this throughout Christianity. Death had to die so that there would be life. Mm. Uh, And so bracket the natural attitude comes first. It's very akin to Christian conversion, that Greek term metanoia, change of mind, change Mm. of heart. We have to undergo conversion through humility. And as St. John Paul II talks about phenomenology, it's an attitude of intellectual charity toward the world, toward the self, and Mm. above all toward God, and the possibilities of God. So that's step one, bracketing. Step two of phenomenology, to receive all that gives itself. That's the language of phenomenology in German, Gegebenheit, givenness, or in French, donation. How everything that we experience is giving itself to us. When we think about our five senses and the unity of perception, we don't so much invent the world or create the world as simply receive it, mm. all that gives itself. And phenomenology wants to second receive everything by also in a way bracketing language as long as possible and receiving things like a child or uh, like a person with certain kinds of disabilities too, where there's this incredible contemplative reception of the wonder of it all. Mm -hmm. And then third, we then have to turn to language and describe what we experience, communicate, what we experience and interact with each other's experiences through empathy and comparative analysis and all that. So phenomenology works in this inductive way, whereas metaphysics for its part begins with first principles, necessary conditions of possibility for there to be anything at all. Mm -hmm. So categories like form and matter, Mm -hmm. act and potency, cause and effect, Substance and accidents, all these Mm. kinds of categories, where we have to reason to that uncaused cause. So the Thomistic Mm. five waves ways are proofs of knowing that God must exist uh, through these various kinds of causality.
0: Right. And like thinking about Edith Stein, it almost you can see like some of the feminine gift package and the male gift package together with this. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You would think the woman would be very. And once it's not bringing, I guess bracketing, you know, not bringing in ideology, not bringing categories, you know, she, she has a way, you know, of just like, like saying in the case, case of life or the person, the human person, you know, just to kind of pierce through that reality and say, well, this person needs, has this need or whatever. And the guy might think of like more solutions or why he's this way and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh. But that is, so what did she, how did she move the ball forward in phenomenology, Edith Stein?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting in her book, Essays on Women, she talks about those kind of things, the differences Ah. between men and women. And like you were just saying, Mm -hmm. men uh, tend to be more at home with abstraction and being task-oriented, You know, and kind of focus the lens on what's the task at hand, let me get that done, and then the next thing. Whereas women are much more attentive to the whole. And yeah. they're very aware in a, in a global way of the environment around them, especially about other people around yeah. them. Yeah. And it's the maternal genius, right. uh, how women mother so well because they're so attentive to everything going on. Right. And if, uh, as a married man, I, oftentimes my wife is like, you know, pay attention, don't you see what's happening here? <laughs> While I'm thinking about something else, something going on with, with our kids or the, the situation. Yeah. Megan will tell me, hey, you know, pay attention to this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so Edith Stein in her feminine genius, she recognized this very well and understood that this is so important for philosophy. She was one of the first women to get a doctorate in philosophy in Europe and was uh, boxed out from getting a professorship because she was a woman. Mm -hmm. That was really what she wanted to do when she got her doctorate in 1917 with her dissertation on the problem of empathy. But she was uh, prohibited from entering the field because she was a woman. Uh, So instead, she taught at this girls' school, like a high school, but also trained uh, post-high school uh, women to be teachers in Speyer, a Dominican girls' school, St. Magdalena's. She taught there for eight years, while she continued to do translation work, both of St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, Questiones Disputate de Veritate, Disputed Questions on Truth, and also some of John Henry Newman's letters and diary. Uh, so she's translating from English to German, from Latin to German. She's just this expert. So she spoke in, English. Yeah, to some degree. There's one letter, extant manuscript we have of her writing in, yeah. to someone in English.
0: So she converted to the faith before she was teaching these girls and
1: stuff? Or? She converts at age 30 so that was in 1921 she's baptized okay. and uh, yeah it was like right before that era of then she's teaching in the girls school yeah. Catholic yeah. girls school yeah
0: and I'm wondering like for like her essays on women did it come during that period because I wonder if that was maybe a blessing in disguise that she could experience and see women in all these different ways and mm-hmm. have all these different Because she moved yeah. around. I, I was surprised how much. So she, It seemed like she got a good taste of culture differences and mm-hmm. stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she did get many invitations to speak uh-huh. uh, all around Germany and even in some other nearby countries mm-hmm. uh, because people were realizing she has some real insights here about contemporary women and the vocation and ethos of woman, Uh, So it's a genuine, we could say, Catholic feminism, and that it's not ideological, but it's thinking toward the whole about the complementarity between woman and man, and what's unique about each. She says, for instance, about the soul of woman, that the soul of woman ought to be expansive, quiet, self-forgetful, and self-emptying. Yeah. And, and and she's and she recognizes that part of this feminine genius is is to be attentive to the concrete what's nearby in the flesh yeah. and at the same time she sees uh, weaknesses in women and men uh, and men of course, as I kind of alluded to earlier, we can, uh, focus, we can be myopic in our approach to things, focus on just this thing and not be aware of the whole, right. not be aware of the emotional side of things. Right. Where the feminine genius is very attuned here, very empathic, but yet intuitive. And yet a weakness with femininity can be um, to be preoccupied with too much and, and too many things. Right. And and also uh, in terms of um, emotionalism or, right. or things like yeah. that and not letting the intellect work enough uh, mm-hmm. within life. And so she talks about that in these essays on women. Well,
0: it's interesting too, like seeing the whole, do you think men can kind of see the whole in a big picture, maybe a plan? You know, we love to argue politics or we argue even like with sports, why this team's winning? Like, you know, we come up with all these, you kind of see a big picture in that sense or where the family's gotta go, maybe a sense of we gotta move here, this is coming in the future, you know, whatever, or global domination, what does that say? (laughs) (laughs) But there is something, but there's a wholeness that women see, I guess, around the person and needs there and kind of a, yeah, it's interesting isn't it? It seems like it kind of contradicts a little bit. That, yeah.
1: Yeah, and maybe yeah. again it's more the men are seem to be better in general uh, at abstracting.
0: Yeah. At
1: abstracting from the concrete, mm-hmm. which there's something of the whole going on there, but it's yeah. more like the blueprint or something whereas the women are concerned about what's in the room. Yeah, right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: What would what, what would she say about like Ephesians 5 and male head chef, what does that mean? What does it look Mm -hmm. like in the family? Yeah, she does talk about this. And again, in that book, Essays on Women, Uh it's so good. I I recommend it to, to everyone to try to read these they're yeah. they're they're fairly legible essays right. yeah. uh, unlike some of her other works potency <laughs> act, finite and eternal being yeah. Uh, yeah. in the phenomenology and metaphysics it's very dense yeah. but these essays were were based were the popular talks that she gave in all these different places so they're mm-hmm. compiled and then we have the english mm-hmm. translation but she does uh, reference ephesians 5 and she admits that when it comes to Marriage, they're going back to the um, creation accounts of Genesis and and talking about God fashioning woman from the side Mm -hmm. of man, that she would be a a suitable helpmate, Mm -hmm. know, helper. And there's nothing of inequality in this, as John Mm -hmm. Paul II talks about in Theology of the Body, the ancient Hebrew idiom, Hebrew idiom of being made from the side, from the rib connotes equality between the man and the woman, Mm -hmm. yet there's a complementarity there. And so she does affirm what we might call the headship of the husband in the family, Mm -hmm. not to dominate, but to lead, to to lead as a servant like Mm -hmm. Christ. And that's what St. Paul says in Mm -hmm. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, So she says, at the same time, there's a paradox here because often because of the intuitiveness of woman, the husband needs to yield to her insights and trust her intuitions and say, okay, let's do that. Right, right. So it's just both ends. Yeah, yeah. And they both, like, the man
0: and the woman both have their own, like, energy sources, too. It's kind of funny... Like I've seen that with women, like they can, you know, they can have these strong emotional reactions. They can react quickly, and I'm like thinking, yeah, if like you're raising kids and the the child's about to touch the hot stove, you got to get mobile quick, you know, <laughs> you got to react on the spot. And men sometimes can love, it's like men have this kind of energy. I don't know if it's like testosterone fueled or whatever, <laughs> but you know maybe to take on challenges, to go for it, to want to do something big with your life. Mm-hmm. You know, in other times, you know they can be kind of slothful, or whatever. <laughs> it's like they need the rest. But there's a, there's both an energy to both, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's just expressed, I guess, differently or mm-hmm. it's focus. I guess mm-hmm. maybe that's sometimes the focus is different,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but. Um, it's fun to see that how oh God, you know, I remember talking about the phenomenology. I remember one time we had these, these beautiful like little ground squirrels or chipmunks, they have a beautiful coat on them around here and they run around with all this energy and they, you know, got all these hawks flying around, you know, so they've got good reason to be nervous. You know, <laughs> one of them got into my office one time and I didn't know he was in there and he was hidden in this paper tray. And I was, I heard something and I looked in this paper tray, it was dark. And um, I could just, I thought I saw these beady eyes looking back at me, <laughs> but I remember, you know, when I started to move closer, you know, he made, he started running for it and, and I couldn't catch him, you know, I was tearing up everything, trying to get it. And I remember just, it took me like a couple days to get him out of the office. And I, it just struck me, man, the energy, the vitality that this creature, like God put this in him so he could survive. He could Build a nest, or she could build a nest, have a family, raise family, have you know, produce. It's like if you don't have that vitality, that energy, mm-hmm. you know. It, and it was just, it was like, I just couldn't believe the amount of chaos this squirrel could do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he, he plants that in all. Of, I think his creatures, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's it's different in men and women, but. Uh, it's it's wonderful to see that in family life and things
1: oh for sure yeah Mm -hmm. and even that word in english energy comes from the greek energeia and aristotle uses this word in his metaphysics and he says uh prior to potency is act Mm -hmm. and act we translate energeia Mm -hmm. energeia is always prior to dunamis in the greek and so Mm -hmm. we think of our greatest energy as followers of Christ is the very energy, the very act of God, and especially the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit mm. at work within us, yeah. not just acting uh, like a squirrel, perhaps out of uh, instinctive design which which glorifies <laughs> God in its own way <laughs> but uh, but in our human experience oftentimes having to uh, exercise this virtue of self mastery in relation to Uh, the natural inclinations that well up in us uh, in order to serve one another in love. Yeah. And, you know, she becomes a Carmelite. You know, it's very
0: austere, order, contemplative. What was her, like, did she pursue intellectual work in the convent?
1: Yeah, she did. It's really funny, her dowry in becoming a Carmelite was six boxes of books that Mm -hmm. she brought with her. So her superior knew she had these gifts Mm -hmm. and welcomed her exercising them in the monastery Mm -hmm. and encouraged her to write. And she wrote a beautiful, St. Edith wrote some beautiful things. Uh, uh, Institute of Carmelite Studies Press has published upwards of 11 volumes of her collected works. One of them is called The Hidden Life, many spiritual writings as a Carmelite, very potent writings. Another one she works on and did not finish because of her uh, premature death and murder was The Science of the Cross, which is a Mm -hmm. commentary on the work of St. John on the Cross. The word in German, Kreuzes, Wissenschaft, Science of the Cross, which is just a beautiful concept to think about akin to what Carmelite's saints call the science of love. And then she also worked on her magnum opus in the monastery called the finite and eternal being and it was a quest into the meaning of being through both phenomenology and metaphysics but it gets very theological throughout mm-hmm. she's always a very philosophical thinker but it's a philosophy that goes the distance into theology and the mm-hmm. difference philosophy, this love of wisdom, is the exercise of the human intellect or reason to the furthest capacity based on the order of creation or nature. What we can know based on our best kind of uh, empirical sciences uh, and also logic, all the classic liberal arts, the grammar, the logic, the dialectic, the rhetoric, these kind of things. But theology depends on divine revelation as its source of data. And so when we combine reason and revelation, philosophy and theology, we're really thinking to the whole as God created us to think. What are some of the things she
0: said about uh, faith and the cross? Some things that strike you and
1: spirituality and things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she doesn't, hesitate to face the abyss we could Mm -hmm. say like all uh, really serious philosophers they they look at this vast expanse of possibility on one hand and actuality on the other and either way it's saturating Mm -hmm. so for thought already there's a leaning in to the suffering of thought we could say Mm. Uh, and and not being afraid of the big questions, not being afraid of solitude and silence, not being afraid to contemplate. And this is something that Jesus says to us over and over in the Gospels. Me phobu," I think is the Greek, but be not afraid. Don't have phobias. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when it comes to thinking, when it comes to living, mm. when it comes to loving, when it yeah. comes to risking your life, for the truth and becoming a martyr. So uh, she knew this and all the little things which accumulated into the big things and their big ultimate testimony there at the end. And she could coordinate all this meaning that is lighting up in her life as she pursued what's called in German, this Zinn zu Samenhang, this perfect coherence of meaning which is tethered to the Logos, that is, the eternal Word of the Father, become flesh for our salvation. So all meanings relate to the meaning, who is the Word, who is the Logos, where we get the English word logic, Jesus the Christ. So she was convinced that He was the way, the truth, the life, even though it hurt her mother, so bad that she converted to catholicism Mm -hmm. frau augusta stein her mother who was a widow her father died when she was about two years old and the mother uh, ran the logging business. right right
0: right. so she had this witness of a strong woman in the business world and her mother running this company and Mm -hmm. prospering it i I heard too right Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: yeah there's some beautiful stories about her mother even procuring lumber for people living in poverty so that they could warm themselves really and things like that so going back to the feminine genius yeah. seeing it as more than a business yeah but uh, a call to come to the assistance of the needy other
0: but they would correspond
1: and everything
0: You've, Yeah, they weren't like alienated right, right.
1: yeah they would definitely correspond edith was would still go to synagogue with her mother mm-hmm. and and she'd be praying the prayers out of the catholic breviary right. in the jewish synagogue because they're the same yeah. um the same psalms um
0: yeah do you know when our mother passed died or roughly? that's a good
1: question i don't know offhand what yeah. year it was um but i know that she didn't want to be edith didn't want to become a carmelite right away after she was catholic because she didn't want the double blow of suffering yeah. to her mother yeah. right. so um I think she did, though, become a Carmelite before her mother's death, even. I'm pretty sure there's a great uh, movie, The Seventh Chamber, on the Mm. life of Edith Stein, Maya Morgenstern, who played um, Mary Mary in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, plays Edith Stein in that uh, movie. And I think it's it's well done. And um, uh, I think, yeah, we see at the grill with her other Mm -hmm. family members. And maybe as I recall, they were talking about her mother's death. But, um, mm. yeah, there was a lot of cross in her life. And so she took the religious name, Teresa Benedicta of the cross and the Benedicta, because she was very influenced in the German city of Biron and the Benedictine community there, uh, and she would go to liturgy there. Uh, so, um, she you had great Dominican influence, Benedictine influence. I'm sure in one way or another, Franciscan influence, but, <laughs> but—
0: Well, the Benedictine was in, in Breslau? Uh, Biron, it was called, oh, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, too, like, she had a deep sense of suffering for her people, right? She and her—her her sister was yeah. in the Carmelites. Yeah, like a third, third order. Yeah. Mineral. Mm-hmm. So, she There's a famous quote where she's going to the gas chamber, right? Let's, yeah. let's offer this for her people. Right yeah, now.
1: she said, let us go for our people. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: And has she been, is she like a real controversial figure for the Jews? I When I was at the museum, I think like some of the family that had immigrated to America, they I think they sent some of the furniture back for the museum. But I got the impression like they really didn't get this, you know, and in terms of like her canonization and everything like mm. that, and uh, but I, I'm just wondering, like her, her person herself, for the Jewish people, or something. Was there? I know there was some, there was some drama around building a Carmelite
1: monastery near Auschwitz. Yeah, or Yeah, right. Which yeah. I don't think ever happened. happened yeah. yeah, out of respect for um, the distinctiveness of the Jewish people mm-hmm. and what they underwent, and yeah. the distinctiveness of Of the Jewish people to this day as a distinct religious tradition Mm -hmm. uh, and and for Christianity, the roots always Mm -hmm. and forever will be Judaism. Jesus himself Jewish, the Blessed Mother Jewish. Everyone Uh, in the early, the the beginning of the church um, uh, is Jewish. And so yeah, she was a controversial figure as far as the Catholic Church claiming martyrdom mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, in the name of Christ and his church. So that's why I would refer to it as a dual kind of martyrdom. It's a martyrdom with, in solidarity with her Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, she was a Carmelite. It was the Dutch Catholic bishops who spoke out courageously against what the Nazis were doing. And that there was a retaliation is why she was deported, her and her sister, Rosa Mm -hmm. along with others from there
0: And I I heard someone explain it too. like the Christian view Is that the cross? Redeems everything that everything can be fruitful You know and God can use all these tragedies and the Jewish approach Wasn't like this is just flat-out tragedy complete loss nothing Mm -hmm. good Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I a minor, I might. I heard somebody describe that was kind of the issue there. To build a carmel there mm-hmm. <laughs> might show there's there's some Christian hope here, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And this is a completely hopeless situation. Mm-hmm. Like, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. From a Christian point yeah. of view, yeah,
1: it, it would make sense. And I, and I think that's part of the ongoing dialectic. And it, it's a good between uh, Judaism and Christianity mm-hmm. that. Uh, we have a sense of uh, brethren, we have a sense of brothers and sisters, uh, of people who have faith in God. We can extend this to Muslims and and anyone of faith and Mm -hmm. goodwill, as the teaching of the Church um, talks about even in the Catechism and some of the Vatican II documents about the possibility of of salvation for someone who uh, to no fault of their own, does not come to explicit confession of faith in Christ. Uh, And that though God has bound salvation to the sacraments, God himself is not bound by the sacraments, these Mm -hmm. passages. Uh, But this dialectic between Judaism and Christianity, and we look at all the the profitable work that's happened since the horror of the Holocaust, in which six million Jewish men, women, and children were murdered. Uh, which is just unfathomable, and it happened not even that long ago, relatively speaking, historically. But a lot of really good work and growing sensitivity has happened since that time. Mm-hmm. And in a real sense, we cannot do theology the same as Catholics, as Christians, since the time of the Jewish Holocaust. And uh, Even for myself, I study also the work of a Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, another great phenomenologist from Lithuania who immigrated Mm. to France and helped bring phenomenology to France. Um, And he has some wonderful books that talks all about the call of the other, responsibility Mm. for the other, and it's just profound work. John Paul II thought very highly of his work, Mm. Emmanuel Levinas, um, I published a book a couple of years ago called the Emmanuel, Um Levinas and Variations on God with Us, since mm-hmm. the name Emmanuel means God with us. And so in this work, uh, in uh, Jewish-Christian dialogue and beyond, interreligious dialogue in general, I think it's a very important work in our time. And I believe St. Edith is a, a model of a dialogical thinker. Not being afraid to encounter the other, interact with the other, raise questions, and ultimately try to seek the truth together.
0: Yeah. You know, something that's coming to me is just too about I you know these great thinkers, you know, that Germany has produced. I mean, think of the world of science as the Nobel P Nobel Prize winning scientists and physicists that came out of Germany. And but you have, you know just like from Western Europe in general, like a John Paul and a Benedict being formed in these great cultures and great academia and stuff. And it, it seemed like that treasure, you know, is being lost. You know, we're becoming kind of more technological and, you know, it's not, it, you know, is there some, It just about like European culture in some ways, like the Italians and everything, they have a sense I wonder if they just seem more phenomenological, you know, they have an appreciation for the things themselves. Mm -hmm. There's something Mm -hmm. about their cultures that preserve like these basic things and they, and they protect it with culture Mm -hmm. and some, and granted, they all have their struggles and it's collapsing and all that, but just historically there's just a richness there that we're very fast, technological, very kind of aggressive and, you know, focused on doing, but, you know it's just sad to see this Western culture dying mm-hmm. that produced such
1: philosophy and, and, and great insights into things mm-hmm. but, yeah, I'm thinking the 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 young history of um well the United states as a as a nation mm-hmm. and granted uh all the uh, the the native peoples before mm-hmm. the time of the colonization and everything else but yeah, I think we're at a crisis in culture where we, we really need to work toward uh, a kind of hermeneutics of retrieval and a recuperation of mm-hmm. the essential and the elemental yeah. so that what we do isn't uh, shallow, flimsy, right. and uh, subject to great uh, transience and um, ephemerality. Right. Uh, and we always yeah, we think of the great... Um, art and and Music. buildings yeah. and yeah it's like people really invested really dug down deep and we're working to to make co-collaborate with god a work a work of art
0: yeah
1: and and i think it's remains an inspiration for us today and not doing what's most expedient mm-hmm. not reducing everything to commodities to be bought and sold uh yeah. these are signs of the times of our postmodern era and um technocracy as it's been called Mm -hmm. but at the same time i think the gospel of jesus inspires us to new degrees of courage uh, to seek and to save what was lost
0: yeah 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 it does seem like in some ways america can be good with the new evangelization just like getting the word out there i don't think we're we're good at building communities much Mm. we're good at getting the (laughs) word out there you know and uh you know media and books and you know all this stuff just to crank it out Mm -hmm. you know when i was when i got to go to the museum at her home in breslau or rosecloth that i remember somewhere in there reading the story of one of the testimonies i guess at her canonization i think it was a I think it was like a German guard or something, when she was being transported on the boxcars to Auschwitz, she was like helping, you know, I guess she was in a boxcar with women, and and they said like some of these mothers were just despairing so severely they couldn't even care for their own children, Mm -hmm. you know, their own Mm -hmm. child. And she was like you know, helping them, you know, and helping mm-hmm. to keep the child alive and do what was necessary to, very practical things are like living in a boxcar for however long a time. Mm-hmm. And and I was a, I was given witness to her sanctity, her heroic sanctity. Mm-hmm. And that that just, I don't know, for some reason that just impressed me so much as like kind of capturing that feminine genius, but, you know, just flat out sanctity too, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> I just thought, I just, I never even thought of that aspect. Like a mother despairing so much of her situation that she couldn't even care for her child. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't mm-hmm. even imagine that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and she was like there standing like Mary for the cross with strength, you know, to, you know, sustained by God. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, she had developed a habitus of self forgetfulness. Yeah. And so she could be very aware of the other and the needs of the other, yeah. the little other, the needy other. Yeah, and that that movie The Seventh Chamber, mm-hmm. there's there's those beautiful scenes in the on the boxcar as you say, and getting out and with the children, the yeah. get, handing the doll to the child and yeah. comforting the child as as a spiritual mother right. to the children all the way to the end. Yeah. And I, I remember going
0: to Auschwitz um, and you you know they they have the They had like the train station so to speak they still have the brick arch the train would come in the loading platform and then the the remains of the gas chambers they're all like ruins now but it was like and i remember i was sitting there and i i thought of like all the hollywood movies about it and and how they presented it and everything and it I i literally thought they did a good job like physically presenting what this looked like but at the same time, in A Sister of Life, this was like during World Youth Day. I remember she put words to it. She said it was overwhelming and at the same time underwhelming. Because there was something about it that was like, how could this be such a place of such great evil? But there's nothing there that, that like, speaks of it in a dramatic way. Mm-hmm, it just mm-hmm. seems all understated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought, that, that's very satanic. Right, he mm. likes to stay understated. Mm. He doesn't like yeah. to make a big show. Right, it's like we're going in hard and heavy, and we're gonna we're gonna take as much as we can, and be quiet about it. Yeah, <laughs> you know?
1: right. Saint yes, Teresa yeah. of Avila calls the devil who acts like a noiseless file, yeah, just working away at souls. Mm-hmm. And we'll just close with this. Uh, but in terms of like her Carmelite
0: spirituality and stuff. What most resonates with you as a third order Carmelite that really helped to form you or inspires you from Teresa,
1: uh, from St. Augustine? Mm -hmm. A Latin phrase, I would say, veritas in se, how she sought truth in itself. Hmm. And she gave up all she had for that pearl of great price, that treasure hidden in the field, that lost coin. She pursued it with a passion To the end, and that truth has a face and a name, Mm. Jesus Christ, that is worthy of endless contemplation. Yeah. So for me, I'm on board. (laughs) (laughs) I'm following her to the master.
0: Well, one more question. You just sparked (laughs) because truth is such a precious commodity today. How? What is your approach or take, or how, as a church, do we take on like these transgender issues? you know trying to be loving and caring and understanding compassionate but standing for truth and and you know speaking out what's the right thing here and how should mm-hmm. we promote it
1: <laughs> yeah i think this is where that met, both phenomenology and metaphysics mm-hmm. are really necessary and something I like to say is anthropology first. And that's, that's part of the truth of our being. We have to affirm and validate the humanity of the other first yeah. and always. That's right. the first thing. That we don't want to put ourselves or anyone else in some box with labels. Mm-hmm. As the church says uh, in some of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith past documents that nobody is a homosexual, a heterosexual you know, uh, a a label, a letter, Mm -hmm. we're human beings, Mm -hmm. first of all. And according to the principle of totality, we're male or female. Mm -hmm. And there's a um, ontological stability to that, a metaphysical Mm -hmm. uh, substance that makes one a male or female, that's given, right. and we don't get to decide. We, we receive our being right. from an elsewhere besides ourselves, and so we're called to be obedient to what has been given mm-hmm. us. So in pastoral ministry, then, we need that also phenomenological approach to be able to empathize with the other. What has the other's life been like uh, that they may be experiencing uh, sexual dysphoria. Uh, mm-hmm. What's gone on? We need to hear their story. Mm-hmm. Janet Smith uh, uh, edited a really good book, and about same-sex attraction, for example. I think she writes a very nice introduction about that, and 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 the language games that are involved in all these ethical issues. So. Instead of labeling people according to some kind of sexual orientation or point of view about this, it's a matter of does someone experience same-sex attraction or does someone experience gender dysphoria yeah. and things? And if you know if so, let's let's hear about this experience. What else has gone on in their life right. that you know they're they're experiencing what they are mm-hmm. now? Um, and so. Uh, you know, we think about Jesus in relation to each one of us. And as we read in, in Scripture, God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through Him. I think that's John three seventeen, mm-hmm. and that's that's the point. Jesus comes to save each one of us, and the victory has already been won. And the point is His salvation. The point is for someone to be washed in the church, in the waters of baptism, Mm -hmm. and to be en route to a kingdom that's not here. Mm -hmm. As Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not here. Uh, So it's a paradox that he also says my kingdom is within you or among you, but it's also elsewhere. And I think as followers of Christ, with all these different issues, um, he's not calling us so much to curse the darkness, curse the darkness. Mm But to testify to the light yeah. and that salvation in Him, right? That has an eschatological um, destiny about yeah.
0: it. As I get older, I appreciate that
1: eschatological
0: destiny. <laughs> I mean, just something is like I remember participating in Rachel Vineyard retreats, and they would, you know, for women post-abortive healing for women and men, and uh, they and they, they talk about like naming their child and everything. And I remember I didn't get the real significance and it. Just only more recently it just struck me. It's like what you're saying there is that your child is in heaven in some way, you know, that, that it's not all is lost. Mm-hmm. Your child is alive, yeah. you know, in Christ. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, how huge that is. It makes all the difference, not just for the hereafter, but right now. Mm -hmm. That this thing that I've done, it's not all lost. Everything is redeemed in Christ.
1: Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, thank you, Doctor, for just talking with us. Uh, You're a serious thinker, so it's good to have you here. (laughs) My pleasure,
1: Father Mark, a pure joy. (laughs)